John and Judy had been married for seven years when John lost his job. COVID-19 caused the restaurant to cut back on their payroll, and John was one of the casualties. Judy was able to continue in her job during the pandemic, but car payments, student loan debt, and credit card bills piled up. Eventually, they had to face the reality that they might lose their home. Tensions erupted over seemingly minor differences. They started to argue more frequently as resentment, anger, and discouragement consumed their relationship. The pandemic magnified the economic problems people faced, putting a serious strain on many marriages like John and Judy's. The blame game erupts as people lash out at government shutdowns, financial choices, and each other. Focus on the Family says that financial stress is one of the leading causes of divorce. Americans had an Everest-sized mountain of credit card debt in 2021. The pandemic did not cause that stress, but it surely magnified it. Total credit card debt in America rose to $804 billion in the third quarter of 2021. That is a $17 billion increase just since the second quarter of 2021. Compare that to 22 years ago when credit card debt totaled $478 billion. It is actually down from a high of over $900 billion in early 2020. Americans carried a balance on 51% of all active credit cards with an average interest rate of 17%. My friends, we may not just end up financially bankrupt from such debt. We may end up spiritually bankrupt as well from that kind of pressure on our lives. Financial problems short-circuit spiritual renewal. Lack of money in our world is considered one of the leading causes of stress among families. Is it any wonder that a commitment to spiritual renewal is hard to maintain for many living under financial pressures? The Church of Jesus Christ cannot expect to be a place of spiritual renewal without addressing the pressures of financial inequality that affect people's lives so radically. The same thing was true in Nehemiah's day. Let's look at the money problems which Nehemiah addressed in Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. We've been examining the various forms of opposition to spiritual renewal that develop. In Nehemiah chapter 4, the opposition was from outside the nation of Judah. But in chapter 5, the opposition comes from inside the nation. In this chapter, the community of faith that Nehemiah leads turns on itself as they fight about financial inequality within the nation. As James Boyce points out in his commentary on Nehemiah, it is not the liberals in government or the ACLU which are responsible for the greatest opposition to genuine revival in the church. The greatest opposition comes from those within the church who, as Boyce puts it, 
want a form of godliness, but who reject genuine Christianity. In Nehemiah 5, we learn that many, many pious religious leaders who pretended to be holy were abusing the poor people for financial gain, causing the people to erupt in anger over their money problems. The battles over money threatened to destroy the nation from within. Take a look at verses 1 through 5. Now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore let us get grain that we may eat and live. They were starving. There were others who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. Also, there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters are forced into bondage already, and we are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. They were in big trouble economically. The stress was so great that even the wives joined in the protest. And who did they blame? They blamed their Jewish brothers. They blamed others in the community of faith for their situation. The people were so impoverished that they could not even earn the minimum wage of the day, which was one silver shekel a month to buy six and a half bushels of grain to feed their families. They were living below the poverty line of their day. The shocking truth about their situation was that their own wealthy neighbors were one of the major causes of their poverty. Other Jews were getting rich on their misery. The rich were getting richer, and the poor were getting poorer, which resulted in the protests of the people. That sounds rather contemporary, doesn't it? I want to see four causes of their money problems in these verses. Four causes. The first cause is rebuilding itself. Verse 2, rebuilding. It may sound strange to say, but the rebuilding of the walls had caused some of the financial stress. The project to rebuild Jerusalem had taken men away from their families and their jobs. It had used up valuable time that they could have used to provide for their families. The families were saying that they needed to be gathering grain to eat, not working on the walls. Back in Nehemiah 4.22, Nehemiah had ordered that the workers stay in the city rather than return to their families, so this had created additional stress on the families. As some might have said, we can't eat walls, Nehemiah, we can't eat them. Those stones don't fill our bellies. This was not the primary cause of their hardship, but it probably brought out the problems which had been simmering for a long time. The same thing can happen when we commit ourselves to spiritual renewal. The added stress of our commitment to church can bring out problems which had already existed in our lives. The church must deal with these issues if we are to grow spiritually as a community of faith. 
Second cause, famine in verse 3, famine. Famine brought additional stress on the nation. Famine then, like pandemics today, are not always the cause of the financial problems, but they certainly magnify them. In an agricultural society, one famine can quickly wipe out the resources that the people had saved up. They were now putting up their homes and fields as collateral to borrow money just to eat food. When you are living close to the line already and then the economy goes sour, you can quickly go over the edge. An economic downturn can eat away your savings pretty quickly. The pandemic caused the disparity between the rich and the poor to increase dramatically in the last couple of years. During the economic shutdown, the rich got richer and the poor got poorer. The higher the income level, the more likely people were to keep their jobs and work from home. The lower the income level, the more likely workers were to lose their jobs. From March 2020 to August 2021, the combined wealth of all United States billionaires increased by nearly 60% or nearly $2 trillion. The top five billionaires saw their income increase by 107% from $349 billion to $740 billion. During the pandemic of 2020, global billionaire wealth increased by nearly $4 trillion, while global workers saw their wealth decrease by nearly $4 trillion. The pandemic, like the ancient famines, saw the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And Nehemiah had to deal with that reality in his day, too. Third, taxes, verse 3. So the people were borrowing money against their homes and lands to pay for food. In verse 3, we find out that they were borrowing money to pay for the mandatory taxes of the Persian government as well. They were borrowing money to pay the king's tax on land they no longer owned because they had used that land as collateral to pay for food. Their money problems were like a black hole sucking them deeper and deeper into debt until there was no way out, as we see in verse 4. They were vulnerable to exploitation, verse 4. The real problem is that the wealthy exploited them in their vulnerable situation. The poor realized that eventually through debt they were owned by the rich. The wealthy had the money to loan them for food and taxes. In times of economic distress, the poor would put up their properties as collateral for loans from the wealthy. The wealthy charged them interest on those loans. Then when they couldn't pay back those loans, they lost those properties to the rich. Next, they would put up their family members as collateral for loans. When they could not pay the interest, the children became slaves to the rich. It's even possible that the daughters were forced to become concubines to the wealthy men. The Hebrew word translated slaves in this verse can mean to rape a woman. This process has been in the news lately because it is 
is actually taking place in Afghanistan today as men are forced to sell their daughters as brides to rich men so they can feed their families. The rich got richer and the poor got poorer. The wealthy may not have thought they were exploiting the workers. They were just doing business, making good business decisions to buy land and build up their bank accounts. The wealthy may even have thought they were doing the poor a favor by giving them a way to meet their needs. The wealthy control the resources and make decisions that will benefit their bottom line in the business world. The details may be different today, but the downward spiral is the same in many cases among the working class in America, for example. CEO pay has risen over 500% since 1992, while restaurant waiters and waitresses are getting paid the same minimum wage, less tips, that they got in 1992. The CEO-to-worker pay gap is more than six times larger than it was in 1980. One reason is that the rich get more income from investments than the average worker get, who gets his or her money from wages and salaries and tips. The richest one-tenth of one percent in America take in 196 times as much income as the bottom 90 percent. I saw a comparison that said the ratio of income inequality has returned to the levels of the golden age in the 1920s when the business tycoons partied and the poor were exploited. The famous musical Annie pictures what it was like in those days. I'm reminded of those dramatic words in the book of James, where he is warning the rich about the coming day of the Lord. The rich were living luxuriously on the gold and silver they took from the poor, but God will judge them, James says in James 5, 4. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the lords of Sebaoth. My friends, as the world around us struggles with financial pressures, the church can make a difference. We can speak up about these inequalities, and we can help on a small scale to address some of the social problems in our communities. As we care about the social and financial needs of people in our communities, it opens the door for us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. Nehemiah shows us the way. He spoke up about the economic problems, but it brought him into conflict with the leaders of the people. We looked at the money problems in verses 1 through 5, now let's look in verses 6 through 11 at the personal conflict. Look at verse 6. Then I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. Nehemiah did something about the problem. He got angry. There is a time and a place for anger. Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.26, Be angry and sin not. Anger is an appropriate response to injustice. Our problem is that we see so little holy anger that we come to view all anger as unholy. 
And when that happens, the church becomes passive and Christianity becomes apathetic. We become the bastion of the status quo, the defenders of the establishment. We don't speak truth to power because we might lose power. We don't get angry because that might rock the boat. The church and our gospel message become irrelevant to a society because of our passive piety. Why would the world want to listen to sanctimonious saints who refuse to get upset about injustice? When is it righteous to get angry? We are righteous in our anger when we are angry about the things that God is angry about. God hates exploitation. We should hate exploitation. God is angry about injustice. We should be angry about injustice. God's wrath erupts when he sees oppression, and that ought to make us angry too. Righteous anger leads to personal confrontation in verses 6 and 7. Nehemiah writes, Then I was very angry when I had heard their outcry in these words. I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, You are exacting usury, each from his brother. After thinking it over, Nehemiah confronted the wealthy nobles. The Hebrew word translated contended in this verse means to strive or quarrel with someone. It was used of a lawsuit. Nehemiah brought a lawsuit against the powerful and wealthy nobles on behalf of the poor people. He accused the nobles of usury. The Hebrew word means to charge interest on loans made to those who come to you with a need. So these poor people were starving. They didn't have money to buy food, and the nobles were charging them interest on money given to starving people so they could eat. They were making money off of the misfortunes of others. They were using the famine to suck money and property from the poor in order to make themselves rich. I find it interesting that Nehemiah did not get angry at Sanballat and Tobiah in the previous chapter. He got angry when the oppression came from within, not without. He got angry with the Jewish leaders who were ripping off their brothers to line their own pockets. And Jesus followed the same pattern in the Gospels. He was not angry with the woman caught in adultery, but rather with the Pharisees who sanctimoniously accused her. He was not angry with the Romans, but with the money changers in the temple. All too often, we as Christians get angry at liberal politicians, forgetting that we should expect them to have non-Christian agendas. Righteous anger should be directed at those who profess to follow Christ while exploiting others for their own benefit. Nehemiah confronted the nobles, but they did not do anything about the problem. So he moves from a personal confrontation to a public confrontation in verses 7 through 11. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. I said to them, 
we, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now, would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? Then they were silent and could not find a word to say. Again, I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? And likewise, I, my brothers and my servants, are lending them money and grain. Please let us leave off this usury. Please give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, also the hundredth part of the money and of the grain, the new wine and the oil that you are exacting from them. As I said, the Hebrew word translated contending in the first part of verse 7 means to bring a lawsuit against someone. So Nehemiah filed a class action lawsuit against the wealthy landowners and businessmen on behalf of the poor people. In order to deal with this lawsuit, he called a great assembly of the people. He went public with his accusations. As governor of the province, he had the power to take action. But the important thing to notice is that in order to hold a public assembly, he must have stopped the work on the walls. The people knew by his actions that he took their complaints seriously. There are times when we must stop the work we are doing for God to solve the problems of the people. After all, what good does it do to build the wall around the people if they're still exploiting one another inside the wall we build? We need to repent ourselves before we can call the world to repentance. We Christians must repent when we grow to place our financial prosperity above the needs of the people around us. Unfortunately, churches can idolize financial prosperity and political power. We can begin to focus on ourselves and our rights. Financial success can become the mark of spiritual success in the eyes of many, many people. And when that happens, we can become part of the silent establishment which exploits the needy people all around us. My friends, the Church of Jesus Christ in any society should be one of the biggest advocates for the poor and the oppressed and the exploited. Now, I don't mean by that just throwing money at people. Nor do I mean that we are to preach a social gospel. Social justice can distract us from the priority to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that is dangerous. That's our mission, of course. Our primary message remains the gospel. However, the gospel teaches us to love our neighbor, to care for the orphans, the widows, and the immigrants in our world. My point is, that the church should not wink at the poor and pay lip service to their needs. We ought to be at work with solutions to the problems that we see in our world. The church can develop programs and devote resources to help the poor become self-sufficient. Temple University in Philadelphia was started by Russell Conwell as an outgrowth of Temple Baptist Church. 
It was started to train poor people so they could get good jobs. Slavery was abolished in England when a Christian man named William Wilberforce persuaded the public to unite against it. Did you know that even a woman's right to vote in America was championed by A.J. Gordon, a preacher of the gospel and founder of Gordon College and Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary? George Whitfield, the great evangelist, started an orphanage in Georgia as a result of the Great Awakening in the 1700s. When we, as Christians, help the hurting of society, then society will begin to take our gospel message seriously. Notice that Nehemiah includes himself in the problem in verse 10. He and his men had been lending money and grain to the poor as well. Now, it was not against the Old Testament law to lend money. It was against the Old Testament law to lend money at interest to those who were poor and could not afford to pay you back. The money was to be used to help the poor, not make a profit from their misery, according to Leviticus 25, 35-37. Furthermore, the Israelites were not to take a fellow Jew into slavery. Debt service was allowed on a temporary basis, but the servant was to be paid a fair wage, according to Leviticus 25, 39-41. And the servant was to be freed on the year of Jubilee and given back his property. He got it all back. The law did not prohibit commercial loans from charging interest. It did prohibit someone from using personal loans to exploit the poor who needed help with the basic necessities of life. The Nehemiah in verse 11 tells them to give back the lands they have taken through loans as well as the interest they have charged the people. The interest they had charged from the loans was one one hundredth per month or twelve percent per year. It wasn't that they were charging an exorbitant interest rate because the going interest rate in the Persian Empire at that time averaged forty percent per year. It was that the poor couldn't even afford the twelve percent. Israel's welfare system, God's safety net under the law, their welfare system, prohibited charging interest in those circumstances and wiped out all debt with the return of all property to the original owners in the year of Jubilee. Nehemiah dealt with the problems head on. He didn't try to ignore the issues because of influential people. Paula Shrive talked about her friend Vioral, who immigrated to the United States from Romania. One day they were riding in a car, and he questioned several bump signs along the road. After she explained what they meant, he was silent for a moment, and then he asked, Would it not be easier to fix the bumps instead of putting up signs announcing them? Nehemiah fixed the bumps, and the church must become known as a place that is willing to fix the bumps, to deal with hard 
injustices in life. If we want the world to pay attention to our message of love and grace in Jesus Christ. So money problems led to personal confrontation, and personal confrontation led to spiritual commitment in verses 12 and 13. Then they said, we will give it back and will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as, as you say. So I called the priests and took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. I also shook out the front of my garment and said, Thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. Now this is true revival. The business leaders responded. They repented. They did what Nehemiah asked them to do. He made them take a public oath to fulfill God's law, and then he shook out the folds of his garment as a sign to them. In those days, people kept their money or other personal belongings in a fold in their gowns. It was sort of a pocket in the outer garment because of the, the way they folded that garment. Nehemiah opened his garment and shook it out, picturing what would happen to them if they broke their vow to God. They too would lose their possessions and their money and all of their precious things and would have nothing left if they did not fulfill the vow they had taken before God and the people. And the whole assembly rose up to praise God. We are to love God. We are to love our neighbor. Those are the two great commandments. When we love God, we will love our neighbor. And when we love our neighbor, we love God. Worship is the wonderful result of obeying these two great commandments. Whenever believers have stepped up to care for the needs of the poor and to fight injustice in their society, then the people have responded in worship to God. God will receive increased praise as long as we, the church, reach out and care for those less fortunate around us. The church will be considered relevant to the world. Revival has always included dealing with social problems, which results in greater worship of our God, greater glory to our God. I recently listened to a sermon where the preacher ranted on and on against social injustice and the liberal politicians who promote it in our society. The whole message seemed a little silly to me. Everyone cares about social justice when injustice attacks them personally. We all want to be treated fairly. Evangelical Christians are the first to scream when others treat them unjustly. Shouldn't we care about injustice done to other people? When the powerful exploit the powerless, the church should stand up in righteous anger. When those who have money steal from those who don't, the church should care. The church should mobilize against that injustice. 
Nehemiah understood a principle that we should remember today. Financial problems short-circuit spiritual renewal. What can we do? How can we help meet the needs in our society? We can't do everything, but we can do something. We can't meet every need, but we can meet some needs. Social justice is best dealt with on a personal and local level first. It is the outworking of the gospel in our lives. It is living like Christ in a rotten world. Tim Keller defines social justice as giving humans their due as people in the image of God. Giving humans their due as people in the image of God. All people deserve to be treated fairly, respectfully, and kindly as people made in the image of God. As image bearers like us, they should not be exploited or oppressed. We should help those who are exploited unfairly because that is what Christ would do. It is what his gospel calls us to do. Christians in Ukraine are facing the horrors of a broken world today. When I was there teaching at Kremenchug Evangelical Seminary in 2019, I had the opportunity to meet many brothers and sisters in Christ. Now they are living out the gospel in a country torn apart by this Russian invasion. The seminary has been turned into a refugee center. My friend, the president of the seminary, makes trips into eastern Ukraine to rescue people hiding out in caves and cellars and bring them back to the seminary. He drives to the border and brings back food and supplies so they can feed starving people. They pay for refugees to travel to the borders of Ukraine farther away from the war. And some of them have died trying to rescue people from cities devastated by Russian missiles and bombs. They are shining the light of the gospel into a horribly broken world and lives are being touched with the love of Christ. We don't live in a broken world like Ukraine, but God calls us to shine the light of the gospel to broken world people every day. We can give to help those in need in Ukraine. There are ways to do that. Local churches can establish programs to help people in need in their communities. Broken world people live all around us. My friends, we need to look at opportunities to serve God in the places where our churches are located. Each church has unique challenges in the community that they can meet. It might be a food pantry. It might be a refugee ministry. It might be a ministry to single moms or those caught in various addictions. It might be financial counseling and assistance programs. These are but some of the ways we live out the truth of the gospel in our broken world today. 